Welcome to the Thirst for More podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Smitley, where we sit down and talk with strength coaches, personal trainers, nutritionalists, and other professionals in the fitness and strength and conditioning field to help athletes, parents, coaches, small business owners help level up their game to provide athletes and clients world-renowned success, either in the weight room, on the field, or on the platform. Enjoy today's episode. On episode 19 of the Thirst for More podcast, we sit down with Dr. Mike Nelson, who is a research fanatic who specializes in metabolic flexibility and heart rate variability. He's also an online trainer, an adjunct professor, and a faculty member at the Carrick Institute. Um, He's also the creator of Flex Diet and the certification that goes along with that. He's also very involved in uh, the talk about keto and that diet specifically for performance and fat loss. he works with people from all over the world through his online training business. Me and Mike met through our ties at Elite FTS, so we happened to be at a seminar, and he was attending, and I believe I was one of the coaches there at the time, and uh, we kind of just talked a little bit briefly there, and that's kind of how we got to go to each other. We've kind of interacted uh, briefly online since then, um, but Mike is very knowledgeable. He's got the academic side of things down, and I really like talking to somebody about metabolic flexibility because everyone tries to understand what that is. People get it confused with kind of if it fits your macros, and then there's also all that discussion about uh, the ketosis and uh, keto diet and whether it works for performance and what that benefits might look like. And Mike does a really good job of breaking this down in relatively simple terms so that you can understand it, apply it if it's something that you would want to use, or even if you're somebody that is experienced in the academic-based world, he's probably going to go into some stuff that might help you benefit and trying to understand if this is something for you as well if you happen to be in that side of the field where you might go to maybe learn some more information so we've got some great stuff in the show notes i highly recommend you check that out with either his certification stuff some extra resources and materials that he's provided us on this Uh, mike has went above and beyond and uh, you could check him out at his website mike for anything else you're looking for on him And I know he's very active on the social medias as well. So enjoy episode 19 with Dr. Mike Nelson. Hey, Dr. Mike, Brandon Smiley, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing, sir? I'm good. I I appreciate you coming on here. Um, We've had some academic-based people on here before. We've had some really good stuff. And um, I remember the first time I met you was actually... I believe through an Elite FTS seminar. And yeah, that's right. That was a while ago. <laughs> yeah, and I've kind of kept up with you since. Uh, I love all your information. It's really good, especially on the nutritional side of things because that's probably honestly one of my weaknesses. Um, and so I like learning from you. And you've got the education and knowledge. So for to get things going, just kind of tell everybody about yourself, your current occupation, uh, what you do, and you know maybe your road to kind of got you to where you currently are. Yeah, so right now I own my own business, which is under Extreme Human Performance. I created a certification. It's called the Flex Diet Certification, which I'm sure we'll probably talk about some of the concepts in there. I'm an associate professor at the Kerrig Institute. They do clinical neuroscience. So I help them more on the nutrition and exercise physiology side. Uh, we have a human performance program through there with my buddy, Dr. Kenneth J, Dr. Freddy's Garcia, Dr. Joe Clark, of how we look at everything from strength to cardiovascular to nutrition to uh, neurology. 
And then I also teach for Rocky Mountain University. So I'll be teaching for them again this fall. And I do a little bit of research here and there, helping with some, some other random projects and teaching and not so much live presentations now. I mean, everything kind of got scrapped uh, with that. And then how I got into it was probably like most people, like I started college as a, I'm 6'3", but so at the time I still weighed 156 pounds. So I kind of looked like a eel-shaped rake. I'm like, <laughs> oh, maybe I should do some of this lifting stuff. And I was all excited when I took my first course on lifting. I was a freshman in college and the guy comes in and he's like, all right, we're going to teach you guys here how to lift weights. And he's like, some of you need to lose weight. And some of you, and he looks at me and points, he goes, holy shit, some of you need to gain weight. <laughs> and then he proceeded to disappear and we never saw him again. So I still didn't learn anything. Um, like most people, you kind of, you know, read magazines and just try stuff. So when I started there, I was on this kick of doing like the same routine every day, which you can imagine how that works for a couple of weeks and then just yep. gives you blinding joint pain and no gains after that. So uh, also when I was there, I was at St. Scholastica in Duluth, Minnesota. It was one of the rare colleges where an undergrad, even not in a physical therapy program or a highly specialized program, uh, they actually had cadavers for anatomy and physiology. So I did a Bachelor of Arts in Science uh, there. And so I got to take anatomy and physiology, you know, using cadavers, which to me was like super eye-opening. I was like, wow, this is like really fascinating. Um, so I started taking more physiology classes, you know, just for fun. And then initially did a dual degree program. So I got my Bachelor of Arts there and then went to Michigan Tech in the Upper Peninsula of the UP of Michigan there. And I was just going to do a bachelor's there. And I thought, well, it's only another, you know, two years to do master's. So I did my postgrad stuff and then ended up doing a master's in mechanical engineering, biomechanics. I ended up looking at uh, basically a ray gun. So I wasn't able to find funding. So they wanted somebody who could do heat transfer stuff. So I had to go teach myself heat transfer. And we created a computer generated model of a monkey head in front of a big microwave transmitter, which the military later declassified as a ray gun. <laughs> so they literally have a microwave transmitter on the back of a vehicle. They point it at a crowd of people and it feels like your skin is being burnt by a light bulb, but there's not any deep tissue heating effects. It just lights up kind of the sympathetic nerve endings on the skin. So it was used as a non-lethal crowd dispersion technique. I look up something called the active denial system. Um, so I finished that and I started working for actually medical device company. At the time was Guidant, it was later acquired by Boston Scientific. So I worked in technical services there and said, okay, I did eight years of college, never going back to school again. I was still reading physiology, uh, just started going to conferences for fun and sat in the back and just annoyed trainers and couldn't figure out why nobody reads research until I realized that, oh, I'm probably the only real nerd in terms of trainers that reads research uh, per se and didn't know what to do. So I ended up going back to the University of Minnesota. I was going to do a master's in physiology. Met a guy there and he's like, well, you should just, you know, don't do another master's. You should just do a PhD in biomedical. I'm like, okay. So it took a year and a half to apply, get into that program. Did that for five years, almost completed all the classwork except for two classes. Um, but along the way, I just spent all my free time reading physiology, going to more conferences. And eventually I just dropped out of the program because I didn't really want to do any more math. 
And then I went over to the exercise physiology department, started that fall, which unfortunately meant that I had to start over from basically ground zero again. I get there the first day, uh, advisor walks in, it's like, hey, we got two new projects and they both involve a lot of math. One's on metabolic flexibility and one's on heart rate variability. And he looks around the table and points at me at the end. He's like, you, math boy, whatever your name is. He's like, these are your projects. So I'm like, oh crap. So I came over here to avoid math. And like the, literally the first day of the first meeting, I get projects that involve math. Um, so that's how I kind of got into those two topics, so to speak. And it was using some math to try to figure out some new information. And along the way, just started training clients. I've been training clients since 2006, actually. Uh, worked at a gym for a while, did that. And it was good. Uh, unfortunately, the gym filed for bankruptcy. So I found out by showing up there one day with clients and a little sign on the door. Oh, yeah, we filed bankruptcy uh, right to this address in Iowa. And this was probably like 10 years ago now. I'm just like, oh, man, like what, what the hell am I going to do? I don't know if I want to go to another gym. I don't want to spend my whole extra free time running around between three gyms and chasing clients down and all this stuff. So I took the clients I had and said, hey, if, uh, if I buy some equipment, were you, are you like, all right, just training to my garage? And two of them said, sure. I gave them like some crazy discount if they would pay cash for a year in advance. So I took that money and went to lead FTS, called up Wendler, <laughs> which was quite the interesting conversation. Uh, Eric Cressney sent me over. He's like, yeah, call Wendler, Wendler. Tell him you're looking at a home gym. He'll set you up. I'm like, all right, cool. So Wendler picks up the phone. And it was literally like a 10-minute conversation of, yeah, just buy a two-by-two two rack, Texas power bar, a trap bar. Don't buy any adjustable bench. They're all shit. Just buy a flat bench. And then the other hour and a half was literally talking about death metal and testosterone for <laughs> like an hour and a half with random F-bombs every other word. So, uh, yeah, so just started training people in my garage. And uh, fast forward, I ended up finishing my PhD in exercise physiology, looking at those two topics. And, yeah, it's kind of where I am today. That's that's very interesting. So you've obviously got a wide group or group and an area of experience with all, all that because there's I, I know personally for me too when I was doing uh you know got my undergrad at Purdue and then being in Indiana State and having to use some of that math yeah <laughs> that's something I hated too and I I've, <laughs> I've always contemplated a PhD and I'm like I just I, if it was without the math like if I could somehow get a PhD and and do research without the math I probably would do it but um, I just absolutely hate it myself and I also have a friend that is actually from Michigan tech. I should say from, that's where he actually coaches now. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I know, I know of that very small school as well, because he's managed to do a really good job with their cross country program. Um, and I met him through grad school. So that's very, very small world. Um, yeah. It's, it's crazy world up there. Cause it's super small. I mean, the college has like six, 7,000 people at the time, like the third largest mechanical engineering program in the U S. Um, but not that many people on campus compared to say like university of Minnesota and I also like, cause when I went there to tour, they had third largest ME program. They had a ski hill right across the area where you could ski and snowboard. And they had a radio station where you could DJ. So I applied to be a DJ there. And then oddly enough, the weight room, the, at the time, the main one they had for the students was super horrible. So a bunch of the students actually went and rented out a room underneath one of the rec halls and had a private uh, facility down there, which was actually super cool. Oh, that was like $30 a quarter. So I was like, hey, this is great. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. 
All right, so you brought up um, your certification about uh, flex dieting. So that's something else that I want to talk to you definitely yeah. about. That was actually probably like my, my number one topic um, in terms of nutrition. Can you explain for people what, uh, you know, flexible, metabolic flexible dieting is? And I want to make sure I make that clear. We're not necessarily talking about um, flexible in terms of if it fits your macros flexible, which, you know, that it could be a part of it, but that's not what we're obviously discussing here. Um, so kind of explain what that is and then how that has kind of became your main point of interest in what you do. Yeah, so the title Flex Diet is a mashup of the concepts of metabolic flexibility and flexible dieting. So flexible dieting to me, like you said, gets kind of bastardized into all sorts of different things. Like for a while it was, oh, if it just fits your macros, that's considered flexible dieting. And but if you look at the literature, it's basically saying that if you have a more flexible approach, like you give people options, they just tend to do better. Now, obviously you're giving them options within, you know, certain types of, of constraints uh, versus, oh, here's your meal plan. You have to hit this like 100% dead on every day or your life is going to hell, right? People tend to do okay with that for a short period of time, but long-term compliance and results isn't really the greatest with that. It, very similar to lifting programs, right? If you give someone a program without any variance at all, yeah maybe it goes okay, but having a few things they can change and sub out that type of thing is usually going to do better from a compliance standpoint. Um, so metabolic flexibility is how well does your body use carbohydrates on one end of the spectrum? And then how well does it use fat on the other end of the spectrum? So a lot of the common nutrition stuff you hear now is that, oh, everyone, you got to do super high fat. That's like the, the in thing now, or, you know, protein and fat only in like a carnivore type diet or other people then are like, oh, but your performance is going to suck. So you need carbohydrates. And it's like everybody has like their own macronutrient camp that they just kind of hang out in. And the reality is our physiology, if it's very healthy, should be able to use all macronutrients. Uh, it just kind of depends upon what you're using. So protein generally not used much for a fuel, uh, but fats and carbohydrates are the two main fuels. So metabolic flexibility is how well can you use carbohydrates? How well can you use fat? And then how well can you actually transition back and forth between both of them as an actual dynamic system? So if you're going to the gym like yourself and you're lifting heavy weights, doing some old school Bill Starr five by five on deadlifts or something like that, yeah, you want the ability to use carbohydrates. That's actually going to help your performance acutely. Um, however, if we're just hanging out, you know, having this conversation, using fat is actually going to be a much better fuel for that, be what's called aerobic metabolism. So it's saying that not one or the other is necessarily better. It depends on the context of what you're actually trying to do. And to be able to use both of them and just use them at the right time is going to be best. Right, right. I think somebody that, from a practical standpoint that I think of that talks about this or maybe even implements this very well, that's very well known in the fitness industry is John Meadows. He's very big. Sure. The intro yeah, manager. he's the man. Yep, and then before and after. And I think the, the bodybuilding community has maybe kind of gravitated towards that, but maybe not so much the average person or the athletic-based population. Usually you see from a registered dietitian standpoint, I know you're probably the same way, all the NSCA conferences you go to, most of the time the nutritionist speaking, speaking is going to tell you, you know, you need 50 to 60% of your, your food from carbohydrates and mm -hmm. you, know, you eat this much here 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 throughout the day and you focus on you know bagels and all this other stuff so um, i guess kind of talk about that in terms of how 
the metabolic flexibility might help the athlete in terms of performance. So if you got somebody that I would say in general, most, most athletics are probably more anaerobic in nature. There's obviously aerobic qualities, but everyone always wants to talk about developing speed, power, explosion, strength. Those are obviously anaerobic based um, capacities and events. So maybe how does that flexible dieting work for somebody that, that does that as an athlete in terms of their performance on the field? Yeah. So, so I would say in terms of like speed and power and things of that nature, we can have a whole side discussion. Is that really anaerobic or not? That's classically considered anaerobic, but if you're a goon like me and you have like a moxie sensor and you stuff it on a muscle and you tell someone to do like a, a balls out 30 second thing, you'll actually see oxygen drop in the muscle. The first time I saw that, like five years ago, my head almost exploded. But, <laughs> but if you look at like uh, typical speed and power, uh, we do know that a lot of those high-end activities uh, are powered more by carbohydrates. And if you've got someone who is on a diet that's very, very low in carbohydrates, and they're not using that uh, glycolytic kind of carbohydrate end of the spectrum, the, that actually kind of goes away a little bit, right? And we see this with, if you look at a ketogenic type diet, so a diet that's relatively moderate in protein, very low in carbohydrates, generally less than 50 grams per day, and generally very high in fat, if someone is on that chronically for a long period of time, uh, we do see a reduction in speed and top-end power of eh, 5 to maybe 8%. So is it a massive difference? Not really. I mean, if you're kind of a recreational lifter, would you even really notice the difference? Maybe not. Um, however, if you're an elite athlete on the other end of the spectrum, and somebody said, yeah, just by changing macronutrients, it could cost you up to 8% off your top-end, like, holy crap, that's, that's extremely significant at that point. So again, the context of, you know, who you're talking about makes a difference. Um, so with most athletes in general, I'm always looking at, <clears throat> yeah, we probably need a, you know, set amount of protein to cover response in terms of recovery. And then from there, yeah, we need a fair amount of fat just to survive for hormonal response, things of that nature. And then carbohydrates are the thing that are probably going to fluctuate the most within the diets. Because uh, most athletes, again, you're looking at this, this tightrope walking. And even people who go to the gym, uh, performance and body comp, right? Because we can just massively overfeed you. And if all out just performance, body weight, not regarding, yeah, that's going to help, right? If you look at powerlifting, you know, super heavyweights tend to lift more weight than other weight classes. Right. Um, however, vast majority of athletics and vast majority of people have some body composition concerns there also they're in a weight class or they're in a sport where they have to move their own body. So they can't just add, you know, 30 pounds of fat that's not doing anything. So you always kind of titrate these responses between making sure they have enough appropriate fuel to get the performance that they need. And then also kind of making sure that their body composition is where they want to be. That's why you find carbohydrate amount tends to vary the most in my experience. Right, right. And you kind of just fed into this for me too, is I wanted to also talk about the ketogenic diet. Um, I guess for the average person listening, what, what is a keto diet? And then, you know, I'm, you kind of discussed on why it's become popular because of the lower carbohydrate um, intake because of that. But is you think there's anything else that makes it um, popular? And then um, based, you already talked about the performance part for me on that. But, um, and then from a fat loss or body recomposition standpoint, is there any upswing in ketogenic dieting versus, um, you know, metabolic flexibility at all? Like, is it really worth 
you know, not having your ice cream to be able to read yeah. the conversation or, you know, is it, you know, is it, is it really worth it for the average person looking to lose weight? Lose weight? Cause I know as somebody that tra- personal trains people that just want to lose weight and feel better, they think, Hey, you know, do I need to drop my carbs? And <laughs> no, there's pro- you didn't get that way by just eating carbs. I assure you. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, go ahead and talk about the ketogenic diet and, you know, positives, negatives, and maybe alternatives for it. Yeah, so a ketogenic diet, in terms of why it's super popular, I don't really know. <laughs> I think it's just like any other trend where people are like, hey, I did a keto diet and I lost a lot of weight. Woohoo! Everyone has to do it. And and even 10 years ago, when I started doing some stuff with intermittent fasting, you know, if you would have asked me and said, yeah, fast forward a decade and like intermittent fasting would be super popular, I would have been like, no, you're crazy. There's no way like not eating is going to be popular. And now it actually kind of is. So everything kind of goes in, in sort of different uh, phases for who knows what reason, right? Gluten-free was a big thing for a while because I think early on, if people went gluten-free, not accounting you know, people who are celiac or people who may or may not have issues, you just couldn't eat a lot of other crazy foods, right? So your food selection and what you made actually changed pretty drastically. And a lot of people ate more whole foods, more fiber, ended up taking in less calories, so they lost weight. Now, not so much. Now you can get gluten-free almost anything, right? So now you don't really see as much weight loss in terms of general population with that. So I'm not sure why it became super popular, but, you know, trendy just like anything else. So as we said, by definition, a ketogenic diet is low to moderate-ish protein. There's some debate about what, what that is and what the cutoff is and all that kind of stuff. But uh, classically, we define the state of ketosis by how many ketones you have in your body. So ketones are these byproducts of fat metabolism. So if I take and I drop insulin really low, so I keep carbohydrates very low, usually less than 50 grams. Some people have to be less than 30 grams. And my insulin level is going to be much lower. Like I said, protein is low to moderate. Uh, fat doesn't really have an insulin response. And if fat is high, what you're doing is you're pushing your body really hard towards the fat end of the spectrum. So I think that is possibly one of the reasons why a ketogenic diet is more popular because it is true that acutely you do burn more fat. Now, some of that fat may not necessarily be body fat. That may be the fat that you're consuming from food. So we have this upregulation in the body's uh, use of fat, which is a good thing. So if you feed a lot of fat through the liver, when you keep insulin levels low, your body will spin off these byproducts called ketones. So there's basically three ketones, acetate, acetoacetate, and beta-hydroxybutyrate. The main one that's used as a fuel is BHB, beta-hydroxybutyrate. And you can stick your finger and get a little marker of what this is, just like you can get markers for uh, glucose, you can get a marker for BHB levels. So if you use kind of Jeff Volek's definition of what is ketosis, you know, anything higher than about 0.5 millimolars, so when you prick your finger, the number on there, it's probably considered a state of ketosis. Now again, there's various depths of how far you can go into ketosis also. Um, if you go kind of look at physiology, ketosis generally was a starvation type condition. Right? So our body is wired that if we're you know, paleo man out looking for woolly mammoth and we can't find any woolly mammoth and we don't really have any food, our insulin levels are gonna get lower and lower and lower. And that's going to push the body to start using more fat as a fuel. So a state of ketosis, in my opinion, is kind of like a backup system. So when you were four days that you were fasted, 
your body figures it out and goes, aha, we'll just start running through a whole bunch of body fat. The downside is the brain can't necessarily directly use fat as a fuel. Uh, its main fuel prefers is glucose. Uh, second fuel, maybe ketones. Third, maybe lactate. So the brain says, aha, we'll figure this out. So we'll, in starvation conditions, have low levels of insulin. We'll have a little bit of glucose kind of floating around, right? We'll make sure that the brain gets that first. And the brain can also use these ketones as a byproduct. So can muscle, so can cardiac system. So these ketones end up serving as another uh, fuel in addition to just direct fats. Most of that is also probably for the brain. Fast forward to modern day, yeah, most people probably, unless they're doing a ketogenic diet, won't ever really get to a state of ketosis. So on one hand, to me, it's absolutely fascinating that if we take Bob, who's 50 pounds overweight, probably has never fasted for longer than 12 hours in his life, never doesn't even know what a ketone even looks like. But if we take Bob and we lock him up in a metabolic chamber or put him in a metabolic ward, and we don't feed Bob for like two or three days, uh, in addition to be very angry with us, uh, he would probably actually get into a state of ketosis. Even the fact that his body in you know 50 years has never run that system per se at a high level, it'll still hold on to that uh, metabolic machinery in order to make that happen. So to me, I think of ketosis a little bit more as kind of the backup system. And just like a backup generator, yeah, do you want to you know, go out and fire up the generator once in a while and make sure it works? Yeah, I think that's probably a good idea. Do you want to live in that state the rest of your life? Yeah, my bias is probably not. Um, however, are there any real negative uh, health consequences of that? Not that we really know of. Um, a lot of times dietitians or other professions will you hear the word ketosis and they think, you know, diabetic ketoacidosis, which is something completely different. So if you're a healthy individual, no matter how hardcore you go on a ketogenic diet, you're not going to get just these astronomic levels of ketones. So we don't really have to worry about that as a pathology in healthy people. You have enough little bit of insulin output that'll cross check that at the liver. Um, we can look to things like uh, the Charlie Foundation has a lot of long-term data on people doing very hardcore ketogenic diets. That's uh, actually an intervention for epilepsy and some other weird metabolic diseases. And when we look at those populations, like we don't really see a lot of negatives per se. Um, on an individual level, there may be some things to, to watch out for. But in terms of is it frankly unhealthy? I mean, I don't think so, especially if you're a healthy person. Um, if you look at some pathologies, like if I get whacked in the head really hard and have a TBI or traumatic brain injury, I'm me personally, I'm probably going to put myself in a state of ketosis as fast as humanly possible. I actually carry, uh, when I kiteboard a lot, I carry ketone esters actually with me to do that just in case. But I think for some pathologies or some type of not normal or quote healthy physiology, I think a ketogenic intervention might be extremely beneficial. Um, if you're a healthy person, I think it's an option, but then we have to look at uh, what is the downside. Downside is generally compliance, right? So your carbohydrate intake has to be pretty darn low. Uh, if you've been doing a hardcore ketogenic diet for many years, yeah, you may get by with, you know, a little bit higher levels of carbohydrates. You start getting into external supplements, things like that. Yeah, you may get by with a little bit higher level of carbohydrates. Um, but for most people, the compliance issue is the biggest thing. So usually I'll ask them, I'm like, hey, what are your like top three favorite foods? 
if their top three favorite foods are all like carbohydrate based foods, I'm not really thinking a ketogenic diet is going to be number one for them, you know, but if their top three foods are like, you know, lard, bacon and butter, I don't know why I just picked those, but you know, or some type of fat, maybe, you know, that might be more easy for them to do. Uh, another benefit of a ketogenic diet is it does, the data is split on this, but it does appear to reduce appetite. Um, so there's been a couple of trials now where they've actually done a ketogenic type approach in athletes, trying to put them on a caloric surplus, saying, okay, can we get people to add a lot of lean body mass on a ketogenic type diet? And so far, those trials in general have been kind of a bust because it was hard to get people to eat a lot of calories in a ketogenic state. Um, so that is a, a plus for some of it. So again, I think it comes back down to the individual. You know, if your favorite foods are carbohydrates, yeah, I'm not thinking a ketogenic approach is going to be the first thing I'm going to have you try. Um, however, if that doesn't really bother you and you're one of those people who tends to get very hungry, very easy, and you find that as you go into a ketogenic type diet that your appetite just drops really hard and that makes it easier for you to be compliant, then yeah, I think it might be a, a good approach uh, for you. If you're an athlete, uh, the first question I'm going to ask you is what is your goal? If your goal is like speed and power output and you're trying to be, you know, the elite of the elite, then probably not where I would definitely start. Right, so I made a little uh, flow chart once that says, hey, should I do a ketogenic diet? And question number one is, are you healthy or do you have a pathology? Right, so if you have a pathology, maybe go talk to your physician about options there. If you're healthy, are you trying to just do it for body comp and you're a recreational athlete or are you highly competitive? And the next little box below that says, if you're highly competitive, do you like winning? <laughs> <laughs> if yes, ketogenic diet, probably not so good right? Probably not the best for strongman, CrossFit, you know, a lot of sports that have high speed and power, especially doing it repetitively. Uh, if you get into long ultra endurance events, maybe I'd say even that is a little bit um, controversial. Um, I do think that if you have to do uh, adventure races where you have to carry all your own food and things like that, now you have an external efficiency to worry about. Uh, I think a ketogenic diet could be extremely beneficial in those cases. And there's some data on that with people doing these crazy races from like California to paddling in a boat to Hawaii and other stuff like that. Um, so again, most people want to hear the answer of, oh yes, I should do a ketogenic diet. It's the greatest diet ever. Or no, it's a horrible idea. Never do it. Right. And the reality is it, it's somewhere in the middle. Right. I don't think it's going to be bad from a health standpoint. Um, but my bias. Uh, it's an option. Um, I'm usually a little bit more on the metabolic flexibility side per se than the ketogenic side. But again, depends upon what you have going on and what your preferences are. Right, right. Yeah, I think it's always important we look at that as a, as a spectrum. I know personally for me, um, I've tried it and I, I, I did like the fact that I got to eat a lot of fat, but as somebody yeah. that <laughs> usually requires a fair amount of food, I mean, um, Right now, I eat almost about 3,000 calories a day, give or take, and you know I'm holding pretty steady at my weight, and so that's a lot of food. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to try to eat. And you try to break down how much fat that is in terms of yeah. like, it's a lot. And then you got to think about possible digestion issues because, like you said, yep. you've got to start eating butter and bacon and you know oil on salads and things like that. Like it's just yeah. it's actually a lot more thought I think than some people initially think. So when people ask me about it from a 
performance and they're usually already eating quite a bit of food. I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't think you truly understand how much, like, <laughs> some grams of fat is in a day and what that can do. If you, you can't just go from 40 or 50 grams of fat to 200, like you're going to be wrecked for a couple of days. Yeah. Um, so I guess also when you kind of brought that up, uh, it, it kind of made me think a little bit of um, carb cycling. So how would you sure. say that um, carb cycling kind of fits in with this flexible dieting approach? And in my opinion, it's, it's very similar, um, but you can make a case that it's, uh, there are some differences. So maybe kind of break off what the differences are between uh, those two approaches. Cause obviously a quote unquote keto or low carb approach is kind of involved in a, in a carb cycling approach. Yeah. So there's a couple of different things. So there's kind of carb cycling as just an overall concept, right? Where you have days of higher carbohydrates, lower carbohydrates. Um, within the ketogenic world, there's even what they call CKD or cyclic ketogenic diets. Um, and those go back like to freaking decades ago to some of Dan Duchesne stuff, Zampano mm-hmm. stuff, Marlo Di Pasquale, um, even people before them. Um, and the theory there that they realized was like as as much as people bodybuilders and you know physique athletes got a lot of stuff correct because they're looking at performance all the time and so what they found with kind of hardcore ketogenic diets was huh like my performance tends to drop so then they thought ha we'll add carbohydrates back in at certain specific times and there's all different timing schemes and things like that um some people I've worked with, they can get away doing that, but I would say they're probably not the norm, right? So one of the approaches was uh, like five days of very hard ketogenic, and then Saturday and Sunday, you just go crazy and eat everything in sight and add more carbs back in. And what you find is, again, there's only been really one study that's looked at this from Wilson's lab. Um, it usually takes you about till Thursday to kind of get back into a state of ketosis, and then you get completely kicked out on the weekend. The other downside too is that if you're doing a ketogenic approach, if you get super nerdy about it, there's an enzyme called PDH or pyruvate dehydrogenase. And all people have to know is it's basically just a gatekeeper to glycolysis, the gatekeeper to this carbohydrate end of the spectrum of metabolism. The longer you're on a ketogenic type diet, because carbohydrates are very low and fat is very high, this enzyme, kind of like the gain on your stereo, gets turned down, right? So early on, if you look at the research, they're like, ah, long aerobic events. These are all fueled by fat. This is our hypothesis, which was later kind of disproven. Um, but if that's true, we should be able to upregulate fat use. Okay, how do we do that? We'll put someone on like a ketogenic type diet. Great, we did that. Wow, we dramatically upused their ability to use fat. They go to run the race ah, no freaks. Like we didn't create anyone faster. So then they said, aha, well, let's measure high level aerobic athletes, marathon runners, and see what fuel they're using. Oh, wait a minute. They're actually using more carbohydrates than we thought. Uh Uh-oh. All right. Well, let's take our high fat ketogenic approach and the day or two before the race, let's just give them a piss ton of carbohydrates, right? So now they've upregulated their body's ability to use fat, we gave them carbohydrates so they'll have stored glycogen and they should perform better, right? There's the same theory of metabolic flexibility. So they do that and no freaks, like no one runs any faster. They're like, oh, what, what happened? 
Oh, crap. Well, we didn't measure muscle glycogen. We don't know how much stored form of carbohydrate in the muscle they have. They do another study. They basically jam needles into their legs and measure muscle glycogen. Aha, muscle glycogen is back up to normal. We're good. Woohoo! No freaks. Like, dad, well, like, dang it, what the hell is going wrong? And what they realized was if you carbohydrate load someone, let's say, who's been doing ketogenic for, let's say, four months, and you carb load them for two days before a big race where they're using more of the carbohydrate into the spectrum, because that enzyme, that PDH enzyme, got turned down, they're not able to use all those carbohydrates to the highest degree. They're still present, they're still in muscle glycogen, but that machinery has been kind of downgraded a little bit. So in terms of that from a high performance, I would say a cyclic ketogenic diet, probably not the best approach for performance. Now, again, some people for physique and body comp have used it and they've, they've been okay with it, but not really the first one that I would go to. Um, I tried doing it like for years, the clients and pretty much everyone I tried it with, I'm like, how do you feel? Like Monday through Thursday, they felt like death. Like I feel like crap, my lifts suck. Like by Friday, they started feeling pretty good. Like Saturday, they felt amazing because they're eating everything in their house and carbohydrates galore. Sunday night, they feel fat and bloated and tired. And then Monday, they just repeat the <laughs> whole cycle again. Yeah. Um, so not really my first approach. So if we go to a non-ketogenic approach and say, well, what about we just oscillate levels of carbohydrates kind of from day to day? That's probably more, more where I'm a bigger fan. And then the question is, well, you know, how do you set it up? In general, if I'm going to run someone with just the basic template, uh, if they're lifting Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and they're doing some type of aerobic stuff, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, just lower intensity stuff, maybe Saturday is just a medley day. Uh, those days are lifting, I'll actually have higher amounts of carbohydrates. Um, the days where they're just doing the lower intensity aerobic stuff, I'll actually have lower amounts of carbohydrates. And so people I work with like Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, or Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday, yeah, like 120, 130 grams of carbohydrates. You know, in general, just have lots of veggies, have a few fruits, a little bit of rice, nothing crazy, nothing, you know, too high. Uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, you know, some people are at pretty high levels. I mean, we've had, you know, some CrossFit guys up near 500 grams of carbohydrates they're trying to crush over those days, um, which is pretty high. And if you, yeah. you know, look at how much that is in white rice and potatoes and even starchy carbohydrates, man, it's, it's a lot of friggin' food. Yes. Um, so I find that that works pretty good. And that gives me a level to kind of adjust, right? So I'm, again, I'm looking at uh, body comp and then also performance. Right. That um, it also reminds me a lot of, and I did this in tail end of undergrad and pretty much the majority of my most competitive part of powerlifting. And I think at the time I was basically doing flexible release dieting, but at the time it was called carb backloading. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Deeper. And, and so, uh, you know, I was having my carbohydrates relatively on the lower side of I usually trained about late afternoon, early evening, which you know, his book is what he's a proponent for, but that's just what worked with my, my lifestyle. Sure. I would have done it wherever, wherever I would have trained, but you know, the mornings you're usually having you know, higher fat, moderate to lowish kind of protein. And then, you know, as your activity kicks up, then, then I, you just pile on the carbohydrates a little bit before, during and after to, to be able to fuel your training. And then if you have a day where you're not training, then he basically has you in a higher fat, lower carbohydrate based approach. 
Um, and if you're somebody trying to gain weight, then he recommends that you still have a moderate amount of carbs at the, the end of that night before you go to bed, which it does make a, a difference when you sleep. I will 100% agree with that. Yeah. Um, and even now I still would say I use a more flexible based approach um, in terms of with the days that I don't train, I usually keep my carbohydrates around a hundred or less. And then the days that I really get after it, which I usually lump as my lower body days because they're more intensive, they're more demanding. Uh, my carbohydrates are usually around two and a half to three times my, my body weight. And then every other day in between, if I do any kind of, I mean, I'm on my feet all day. So I am active all day in some regards, but um, like if it's a bench day or something, I'm usually in that moderate category because I don't need quite as much fuel. So that's very, very interesting. You kind of talked about um, how to, to balance that. And I think that puts that in perspective for a lot of average people of how they train. And in general, I say, you know, eat to match with what you're doing if your physical activity level is very high yeah. then you probably need more carbohydrates in your life and if your physical activity level is relatively low you know you only lift once or twice a week and you play with your kids outside you know relatively frequently on the weekends then you know maybe you only have one or two high days during the week and everything else is moderate to low like it just depends on what's going to fit your your lifestyle and as long as you understand what those food choices look like then it makes picking foods out also a little bit easier as well if you don't want to actually be astringent and track calories. Yeah. And I think it just gives you a framework to operate in too. Um, you know, if I have clients who are more physique based per se that are still lifting, uh, some research from Bill Campbell's lab showed that having two days of back-to-back high carbohydrate amount and then lower amounts the rest of the time compared to the same intervention, the same number of calories over the course of a week, but just distributed more evenly throughout uh, the two higher carbohydrate days back to back was better uh, from an, in retention of muscle mass. So they still lost the same amount of quote unquote weight, um, but the group where they had the two days back to back, they retained a little bit more lean body mass. And again, these were a group of you know athletes that were per, you know pretty lean already. Um, so I think as you get leaner and leaner, you know different techniques like that can be good. So I've used that for like a year and a half now, and I'll stack their two high intensity days, uh, depending on what their lifestyle is. A lot of, from a lot of my clients, it's Sunday and Monday are their two higher carb days. Usually a weekend day is easier for them. And then their two heaviest loaded days are usually Sunday and Monday, you know, so they may have a lower body day Monday and an upper body day Sunday or something like that. So I'll stack their training in accordance with their days that are higher than two. Right. And I guess let's say let's kind of switch this up for let's say like any any parent that would happen sure. listening what should they be looking for if they're like you know I want to help my kid get the most out of their their performance you know we eat relatively okay they still eat kid foods here and there like they're going to um but you know they are eating more protein based meals and you know their carbohydrate choices are generally better um what should they look like in terms of the kid uh, nutritionally in terms of how they educate their high school or, um, you know, if they've got, um, you know, how would you maybe set up that nutritional plan based upon practice days first game days first, you know, it's Sunday, no practice, no games at homework night. Uh, what should that look like? Yeah. The biggest thing is just making sure that they have some type of baseline, right? So even with new athletes, even if I know like they've got Sunday, they don't have any practice and then maybe, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, they've got two a days or something like that. A lot of times I'll paradoxically do what I call just like a flat macros approach. 
Like, okay, you get this amount of protein, get this amount of fat and get this amount of carbohydrates. Here's your food choices. Here's kind of what it looks like. Um, and I actually won't alter anything. And the reason for that is I want to see them hit something consistently. Um, for example, I had a new uh, female athlete. So we looked at her nutrition and I'm just like, really? Like this is all that you are eating? You're getting like 60 grams of protein a day. You know, you're a very active soccer player. Some days you've got two a days. Like you are massively like under eating. No wonder you're tired and feel like crap. You know, so a lot of times it's just, you know, making sure they have enough protein recommendation there usually is going to be about 0.7 grams per pound of body weight so if you've got a 200 pound athlete you're looking at about 140 grams total per day so if they eat let's say four meals eh, you're looking at around you know 40-ish grams on the high side 30 grams per meal right so something around that amount um, fat you got a minimum of you know, 60 to 70 grams per day. Usually you don't need to add too much depending on your food choices. And then carbohydrates, usually you're just looking at, you know, different sources. And I'll just play around with, you know, vegetables, kind of starchier carbs versus not. I use a lot of potatoes and white rice and that kind of stuff. So initially I'm just doing every, every day is going to be the same because I want you to be consistent and I want you to get an idea of what it feels like to usually have enough fuel. So a lot of athletes are way under fueling. Okay. Once I get that down and everything feels pretty good, then I'm going to start playing around with carbohydrate amounts a little bit more. So Sunday may be a lower carbohydrate day because you're not as active. You know, when you've got two a days, you know, it may be uh, higher amounts. And then another trick you can do is if they get to a more advanced state, let's say they've got a, you know, skills day in the afternoon at 1 p.m. And then they lift at, you know, 4 p.m. after or whatever their schedule is that they've got going on. Obviously, it depends if it's summer, if they're in school, that kind of stuff. Uh, but if it's summer, kind of off-season stuff, uh, between there, you can then use like a Vitargo or some type of uh, liquid carbohydrate in between, uh, depending on how close those two windows are. Um, because at that point, the how fast a carbohydrate enters and gets used actually does matter. Uh, most people, if it's 24 hours before your next thing, just get in enough carbohydrates, you're going to be fine. You don't get to you know, worry too much about the type. Um, but you know, if you've got a big afternoon and you've only got a two-hour gap between that, you know, then using some kind of faster-acting carbohydrate can make a pretty big difference. Um, and in some athletes, I may just start with that just for ease of operation and then get them to feel what it actually feels like to have enough carbohydrates to support their activity. Because I still see in a fair amount of athletes that they're probably consuming not enough carbohydrates for how active they are, or just not enough calories, period. And it's very inconsistent. Like they'll have days where they'll hit like, you know, 1200 calories and you're like, how the hell are you still even upright? And then the next day they'll kind of overshoot a little bit and there'll be kind of this kind of oscillation all over the board too. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that's probably the biggest thing that we see with our kids that we work with is definitely the, the under, uh, eating side, especially on the protein side of things. They yep. have very hard on time understanding how much they truly need and how physically active they are within their sports and then walking around and, and just overall being kids. You don't sit around a whole lot when you're a kid. Um, yeah. Especially at least the kids we work with when you do sports. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, the, the kind of the last thing that I want to talk to you about on this was, um, supplements in regards to flexible dieting and keto and the big one that kind of came to mind to me is 
I would say, like Lisa, we talked about earlier how the keto diet has kind of come and gone in waves. And I feel like there has been quote unquote keto based supplements that have kind of definitely kind of maybe they're just yeah. money off the, 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 the branding in the phase. I don't really know, but um, I will admit, I don't knew people ask me about like these keto supplements and I sort of say, you know what? I have no clue. Uh, <laughs> I, I really don't. I was like, as, to be honest, if you were probably come to my gym, keto is probably not the nutritional <laughs> for you anyway. So I don't feel like I need to know the quite amount, quite amount of details. I know what it is and how I would, you would implement it. But I mean, I just not a big proponent of it. So I don't feel like I'm doing a whole lot of research on the supplemental side of it. So I guess kind of talk about how the, the, the keto sticks or whatever these supplements are that people are taking, how they work and are they worth what people are paying to, to use them? Yeah. So in the past, the only way to get into a ketogenic state. So if you put a gun to my head and said, okay, you without the use of supplements or drugs or anything have to get into a ketogenic state. So high level of BHB, beta hydroxybutyrate in the shortest amount of time, what would I do? I'd probably fast consume like medium change like glycerides especially like a c8 and do a lot of exhaustive glycogen depletion exercise now again does that mean that's the best thing to do no but you're trying to drive glycogen stores down and you're trying to keep insulin low and if you do those things you can sometimes increase ketones with uh, certain oils so mct oils coconut oils things like that um, that works if your goal is to hit just a state of ketosis. Um, now you can actually use supplements that within 20 minutes will get you to a very high level of ketones. So there's two forms of them. Uh, there's what's called an ester form and there's a salt form. Uh, both of them so far this recording are still considered supplements sold over the counter. So the esters were originally developed um, as two labs, basically. So Dom D'Agostino's lab in uh, Florida, and then the other lab is from uh, Dr. Veach in the UK. And so in Dom's lab, they were looking at uh, Navy SEALs using rebreathers. So a rebreather is a special device that's not like a scuba tank, right? So a scuba tank, if anyone who's done it, you see bubbles that go up to the top of the surface as you exhale. Obviously, if you're trying to be really sneaky, having bubbles show up out of an area you're trying to sneak up on someone, not so good. So they use something called a rebreather that doesn't have any external bubbles. Downside is that sometimes they can get what's called oxygen toxicity and they can have cognitive issues and it can be a pretty severe issue. They realize that having high levels of ketones or being on a ketogenic diet actually severely reduce the amount of oxygen toxicity risk they would have. But that wasn't super practical all the time either, especially when you don't know potentially when a mission is going to happen, things of that nature. So they said, hey, can we give these you know, people something that would put them into a state of ketosis in a short period of time? Uh, so Don went to actually Patrick Arnold, and they synthesized the BHB molecule and attached it to different esters, basically. And there's a bunch of different types and blah, 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 a bunch of stuff there. Um, but what that does is you consume it and within 20 minutes, you can go from like not registering any ketones to like two, three and a half. I've had people hit like four millimolar, which is really high, right? So for people to hit like even three millimolar, you're probably doing some type of very long extended fast. So now with a supplement in 20 minutes, you can get those super high levels of BHB. 
So from a research standpoint, to me, that's like freaking fascinating, right? So we did this as part of the, the carrot course. We said, hey, um, it's a three-day course I was doing on nutrition. So what happens if we have people do an all-out 2K on the rower, which is just hideous by itself, and we did it under three conditions. So one day we did it fasted. One day we did it uh, using the ketone supplement. We used the HMN ester. And then the last time we used it after having a fair amount of carbohydrates. And again, it's anecdotal. I've only done this once in the US and once in Sweden. Um, we had a couple of people hit a PR on the fasted day. We didn't have anybody hit a PR on the ketone day. And we had several people hit a PR on the carbohydrate day. Again, unpublished data, that type of thing. So what's fascinating though, is that how hard it felt by using the ketones Sometimes people reported that it, it actually felt a little bit easier. And we did some cognitive testing and a bunch of other stuff around it. So again, for all out speed and power, is ketones gonna be the preferred fuel? I'd say probably not. Um, if, however, you're doing some type of cognitive task, maybe. So if we go back to ketones as a supplement for the average person, is it gonna matter a lot? I would say probably not, to be honest. Um, the other form of a supplement, which is most common now, is a salt. So they'll take the BHB molecule, so the ketone, and initially they just attached it to a sodium ion. So the original one that Patrick Arnold produced, I still have in my fridge, it's called Keto Force. And it literally tasted like you were just sucking on salty seaweed. It was just ungodly salty. It was just crazy bad. The downside was, even with a small amount, uh, you would get a fair amount of GI upset just because of the massive influx of sodium. So if you influx a whole bunch of sodium into your gut, it's not gonna end real well, right? If someone just ODs on you know, table salt too much, right, you're probably gonna spend some time in the bathroom after that. Um, so what they did then is that they split it out over different ions. So they picked four different ions, I think calcium, magnesium, sodium, potassium. And so that way it gets distributed through the gut, it gets uptaken a little bit easier, and then you can take in a higher amount. However, with a, a salt supplement, maybe you hit one millimolar, maybe you hit 1.5. You cannot hit as high as you can with a ketone esters. Um, however, they are cheaper. They actually taste pretty good now, which is kind of crazy. Um, in terms of performance, eh, I'm not convinced that there's a massive increase in performance. Now, the caveat to all of this then is because it's a supplement, now you can start to do crazy stuff where you could have high levels of glycogen stores and high levels of ketones. I could combine a glucose type uh, solution with ketones at the same time. So now I can start combining different fuel sources together. The data on that, pretty mixed, right? Some of the data from Veach's lab published in Cell uh, showed that in elite cyclists, they did see like a 2 to 3% increase in performance using carbohydrates and a ketone ester, uh, which in that group of population, that's a pretty significant increase. Um, some of the other studies haven't really been able to replicate it. Luis Burke did a study. They also had a huge amount of GI upset in that study. So for right now, in terms of all-out performance, even combined with carbohydrates, it's like a, a maybe. So the thing that does potentially concern me though about people who are not high level of athletes, maybe get a little bit of appetite suppression from it, but thinking that you're going to add it to your normal diet and you're going to see an effect, probably not. Maybe you get lucky and maybe you're a little bit more of a hyper responder to it and your appetite goes down. 
that's okay. If you're doing some type of fasting and you're using it as an adjunct to that for cognitive function, I think that might be beneficial. Um, if you're looking to do it as an actual intervention to a, like a pathology, like in my case, if I get whacked in the head, I carry some of the HVMN esters just to put myself into ketosis. Again, that's theoretical, just based on the research that's been done. I think it might be useful. So again, like similar answer to before, probably way more than you wanted to know. The context matters. What are you consuming? How much are you consuming? What are you doing? But I would say right now, yeah, probably not super beneficial. The last part too is that if you look at sports that may have a potential risk of head trauma, I, th I think you could make an argument that there may be some benefit there in terms of health, right? So I've often wondered like if you're the NFL, NHL, before players go into a game, do you prophylactically consider giving them some type of ketone uh, supplement to have higher levels of beta-hydroxybutyrate, acetoacetate? to if they get whacked in the head, maybe they have less side effects um, from that. Um, so I would say that's still theoretical, but there's a fair amount enough underpinning that, that the, the principle kind of, kind of makes sense in those cases. Interesting, that's very cool. All right, well, I'm gonna give you a chance here to kind of push your own stuff um, and kind of talk about your flexdiet.com and um, kind of what you do with that and um, where anybody else can maybe get in touch with you, uh, learn more about what you do, or if they just have more questions in general about um, flexible-based dieting approach or ketogenic diet-based approaches that we discussed, um, you know, how they can they get a hold of you and learn more about what you do. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, so I designed the Flex Diet certification for, it's mainly for trainers, but actually about 40% of the people have gone through have been just kind of fitness enthusiasts or interested in that kind of stuff. So when I set it out initially, I was like, especially at the time, I was spending a lot of time in CrossFit gyms. And I was surprised that like, you know, the high-end gyms usually had someone doing nutrition. But a lot of the other gyms, a lot of people were there for primarily body composition reasons. I would ask them like, oh, what do you do for nutrition? And they're like, I don't know. We just do like a random challenge every 30 days. I'm like, oh, great. So you have like the fasting challenge and then you've got the what high carb challenge, I suppose. And then the keto challenge, or I don't know, it just seemed very disjointed. So when I set up to do it, I wanted to do something that was based on a, a custom, but yet flexible approach. And my goal was to get, you know, one person maybe works at a gym of, let's say they have hundred, 150 members that one person could do all the nutrition for people in the gym. Right. And again, we're not talking about treating pathologies or anything like that. Just talking about health and performance stuff. Um, but then the next problem I had was I'm like, well, where do people start for interventions? Right. Cause you've got someone who comes in, who's not eating enough protein, their calories are all screwy. Their micronutrition is a disaster. They sleep five hours a night. You know, you could in theory pick any of those things and probably make pretty good progress with them. So I came up with rating things on a physiologic impact and then their psychologically ability to change. So for example, sleep, right? So sleep is like really kind of sexy now and for good reason on the physiology side. I mean, if you, everybody could magically get more sleep, everyone would probably do significantly better. But as you know, as a coach, like talking to clients about sleep is like just pounding your head against a wall. It's like really, really hard to get them to do anything different 
because at the end of the day, it, it's kind of sort of a value judgment. So you're like, oh, okay, so you're telling me that, okay, the two hours at night I spend when the kids finally go to bed, I'm not working and I get to chill out with my you know, husband or wife or whatever and watch Netflix for two hours. So you're telling me not to do that and just go to bed. It's like, well, yeah, kind of, yeah, screw you, it's a horrible idea. Um, so if you rate the interventions I had on physiology, you know, sleep's pretty high. Uh, ability to change, it's like a, on a one to 10 scale, it's like a one, it's like dead last. So when I rated them, uh, sleep ended up coming out number eight. So it was actually the last thing. Uh, protein, however, was like the number one thing. Usually talk to most people about protein, lots of good physiologic reasons of why it helps, especially with satiety, especially with recovery, everything else. Um, people who are dieting, you're like, hey, I want you to eat more of this thing. They're like, what, you want, what? You want? I thought I was supposed to like not eat as much. So you're telling me I need to eat more protein. They're like, yes. Um, so that was a relatively easy win once you get over the just a little bit of education. So protein then was ranked number one. So the course is set up with eight different interventions and then they're ranked in that order. So whatever has the highest physiologic and psychological ability to change is gonna be near the top. And then there's just an overall lecture that talks about you know metabolic flexibility, flexible dieting. And then there's a one hour lecture that talks about each individual thing. So everything you wanted to know about protein in one hour, carbohydrates in one hour, fasting, keto, that type of stuff. And then we have very specific action items that you would do for each one. So for protein, there's you know five different action items that you would do. And if people want more information, we have like nine different uh, expert interviews in there from you know, protein, we've got one from Stu Phillips and Jose Antonio. Uh, if you wanna know about flexible dieting, we've got Dr. Eric Helms. Um, so we have actual experts talking in detail about the specific things. Um, but yeah, so they can find more information on that is just uh, flexdiet.com and then sign up to the waitlist there on the newsletter. And then it opens right now around four times a year. Uh, so as soon as it opens, then they'll be notified of it there. Cool. All right. Well, I appreciate all your information. I'm going to have uh, the show notes available on our website as well about everything we talked about with all the links to the uh, flexdiet.com and your website. And then also kind of talking about, um, you know, what you do and your basic biography and all your website stuff as well. So, and, and also all your social links. So um, I, I follow you on Facebook. You always have really good stuff on Facebook. I know oh, thank you. <laughs> a lot of the population is very Instagram heavy, but kind of yeah. like what you do. I mean, like you like you've said probably almost a dozen times here is that context matters and having context yeah. on Instagram is very, very difficult when you've got this very small image with so much. Oh space yeah. And, and you know, you could, you could say that keto sucks on there, but at the end of the day at the bottom, which nobody reads, you could say, but here's some good positive things. Like we kind of said today where the context matters. So um, I personally like your Facebook stuff and uh, I usually take away some good stuff and you have stuff on there. So um, I'll have all that linked on there as well. Um, do you have anything last, second that you want to add before we go no i mean most content i put out now is through the newsletter so if they just go to flexdiet.com go to the wait list and they can sign up to the newsletter and uh, through there they can just hit reply and tell them that tell me that you heard me on the show here and i'll send them a cool gift oh awesome i appreciate yeah. it yeah thank you i appreciate uh, you having me on here really appreciate it yes thank you take care mike yep we'll see you bye-bye Thanks for listening to Thirst for More podcast. Give us a follow on Spotify, iTunes, Google, and other streaming services.
feel free to visit our website, thirstgym.com. That's T-H-I-R-S-T-G-Y-M.com. And click on the podcast tab to look over show notes and extra free resources. You can also give us a follow on Instagram at Team Thirst. That's T-E-A-M period T-H-I-R-S-T. Or you can give me a follow at B Smitley. That's B-S-M-I-T-L-E-Y for more updates on future episodes to come. I'm your host, Brandon Smilly, and we'll catch you at the next episode.